I'm Srividya Sridharan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by analyst Rowan Curran and Vice President and Principal Analyst J.P. Gounder to discuss the generative AI inflection point. Welcome both. Thanks for having me. Hi, thanks for having me. So Rowan, we had you back on this podcast in April. We talked about the impact of Gen AI. And in just four months, there's already a lot more to talk about. What kind of impact is this technology having now as we speak? Yeah, so four months seems like such a short time when we're discussing any type of enterprise technology. But in fact, uh, quite a number of things have happened in this space uh, in, in that span. So one of the biggest things that we've seen is the uh, movement of folks from just kind of discussing um, generative AI to really getting into their uh, first round of use cases, uh, whether that be a pilot or a full-scale deployment. And this is coming both from the uh, vendor and user side. And really, overall, we've seen just a very broad adoption of uh, either generative AI embedded applications or starting to build custom applications at companies. And this comes in tandem with a uh, growing maturity in terms of the sort of policy approach and the uh, cultural approach to generative AI within organizations as well. So there's been a lot of progress, a lot of uh, uh, movement along the maturity curve in terms of how organizations are thinking about this over the past four months. Though I have to say that, you know, even with that amount of progress, we still uh, encounter a lot of, um, you know, very basic misunderstandings about some of the aspects of the technology and its application here. So uh, yeah, a lot of progress has been made, but a lot uh, farther to go, I think, as well. And JP, um, what has come up in your conversations over the last four months, just in terms of any shifts that you've been noticing? The first thing is probably FOMO, fear of missing out, an uncertainty. As Rowan said, um, as hard as Rowan has been working to educate the market, there's a lot of basic misunderstanding. There's a, bit, a lot of uncertainty about this. But at the same time, there's a lot of positive curiosity. Uh, and I tend to work with companies who are thinking about their future of work strategies, how they're going to reach different workers, who they should be equipping workers, which groups of workers they should be equipping, uh, how they should measure their success, that sort of thing. And of course, a lot of this comes down to a, a few different available options. One of them is Microsoft Copilot for th Microsoft 365, which will embed generative AI into all of our office applications and teams and like, um, and about 600 companies in the world are piloting that. And I've talked to some of them about uh, whether they should do that and then what their experiences have been. And the other topic that comes up a lot is uh, bring your own AI, BYOAI, as we call it, where, you know, people know that if they move too slowly on this, their workers are going to go and use public uh, generative solutions. And, and that comes with its own problems. So clearly, this is one of those technologies where, you know, consumers, employees, uh, there are so many stakeholders who have been able to touch and feel and experience the impact. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of this um, intersection of all of these different type of stakeholders now adopting, learning, educating themselves about Gen AI? What are, what are some of the things that you're seeing in terms of um, trends that are impacting all of these stakeholders? Yeah, so it's really, really interesting to watch the 
hyper adoption at both the consumer level and also at the enterprise level. And at the consumer level, you know, it's happening at kind of, you know, uh, not maybe not every layer in every strata of society, but many different demographics of folks are engaging and building and, and playing with generative AI today. And what that is really doing within an enterprise and a business context is it's creating an environment where there's a lot of uh, hesitation from uh, some IT leaders around, you know, uh, allowing folks to use and adopt this technology. But what we're seeing is that, you know, this is actually creating an environment where there's a huge opportunity for tech leaders to capture this um, energy from their users to help drive forward innovation and future use cases around this. Yeah, you know, there's so much going on here, it's almost hard to pick an example. One I like a lot is the education space. Now imagine if you were a teacher or a professor at the beginning of 2023. You just come out of trying to figure out how to deal with the pandemic and teaching remotely, and all of a sudden, all of your students are using ChatGPT, Google Duet, other kinds of generative services to write their essays. What do you do? You have to rethink your pedagogy. You have to think, maybe you incorporate ChatGPT into the lesson by asking people to say, uh, you know, instead of writing me an essay, write me a prompt and then show me what ChatGPT revealed to you and then critique it. Identify all of the areas where it was wrong and rewrite it in your own words. And then maybe do some in-class writing, you know, that doesn't allow any access to the internet. All of these teachers had to figure that out in essentially real time in one single semester. So that is the kind of disruption that can happen with this technology. And it may well happen to your workforce. It may well happen because your customers change their expectations. But it is coming, uh, and you know that's not to scare you, but it's just to say this is a very, very fast-moving trend. I just wanted to build on that changing expectations piece really quickly because what we've seen is that you know even though we've it's been a hyper adoption on the consumer side, what we've seen is that leads to a lot of uh, confusion on the enterprise side. So I can't tell you the number of questions that I've gotten that boil down to. How do we build chat GPT for our enterprise, which is not necessarily the correct question you should be asking for your business. But because of this, you know, uh, fascination and um, uh, relationship that people have with these chatbots, that tends to be the core focus here. And I think that, you know, it's important to not get too locked into the interface and the experience being the most interesting thing that we can do with these models. So yeah, let's dig into that point. I mean, clearly um, the way that we are engaging with this technology as humans in natural language, you know, that has changed. And, you know, JP's example, you know, it had to change in one semester for in the education segment. How broad will this impact be? Is this the inflection point that we're talking about? I think it is an inflection point. And I think that the basic inflection point is this. The way that human beings and technology have interacted for quite a long time has always been held back by friction and boundaries, right? Dealing with technology has always seemed like a challenge because it's not like dealing with other human beings. And when you bring natural language into the picture in a very performative way, um, it changes that relationship. It reduces those frictions. And it means that people who previously didn't have an easy time with technology might have an easier time. It means that uh, people who did have an easier time, maybe they are able now to get more out of technology in less time you know, spent. So it's really um, unlike 
previous attempts here. And frankly, let's look at it. We've had Siri and Alexa and others. They simply weren't as performative as the models that we have now. So Rowan and I have been doing some interviews with thought leaders uh, for a forthcoming piece of research. And one of the things that we heard from a lot of our interviewees was that November 30th, 2022, which was the date that ChatGPT was released, was the seminal moment. And the reason that it felt so seminal was that it was performative in a way that the past models have not been. And once you get to that point where you're basically beating the old Turing test, where you're basically able to almost uh, fool people into thinking perhaps this is a human on the other end, that is a game changer. And just to add on to that a little bit, I think that the inflection point here, it's being driven by the fact that this is not a net new technology. The large language models, as you know, we talked about in the last uh, podcast, have been around for a number of years. We've really just hit this point, as JP said, where people have realized their usefulness and have really had their minds open to the art of the possible around them. So we're hitting this point in a further acceleration of the space um, that was already moving quite quickly. So, you know, the amount of work and research and both in academia and in industry that has been done on large language models in the past six months probably exceeds the work that has been done in the past five years by you know, I would say at least a factor of two, if not something like 10 or 100. So we're entering this period of where this technology was already existent, but now we have a huge acceleration in terms of the amount of exploration, development, and optimization that is being applied to them. Yeah, and I loved um, some of our brainstorm conversations about this research. I think, uh, you know, one of your interviewees mentioned it, the, the, sh the conversation has shifted from the boardroom to the kitchen table and and probably back to the boardroom and the kitchen table again and again, right, in, in a very short span of time. And so um, it seems like, you know, we're, we're in that moment where there are so many forces at play that all came together at this point in time that is, you know, becoming that force multiplier, as, as Rowan um, mentioned. Talking about that, JP, so you had some research uh, published earlier this year on um, you know, demystifying the space that we are in right now and using a very interesting model called the four M's. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that relates to, you know, the moment that we are in with Gen AI? The four M's is a way to think about as you're uh, trying to identify how and whether to move forward with investments, what are the parameters of what you're facing? And two of the M's are quite positive. One of them is a multiplier effect right, where we're able to scale out certain, you know, work tasks that were easily um, very manual before, and now they are easily very uh, automated and they are using natural language. Think about a marketer who wants to send out lots and lots of personalized emails. You can do that using generative AI as a tool. So it multiplies your effectiveness. The second positive M is magic. And this is what's got us all excited, right? We are all enchanted by the results that we get, particularly out of ChatGPT, but you know, as Rowan said, it's really a, a much bigger universe. If you've used Adobe Firefly or seen some of the demos, this also applies to the creation of visual assets. It's magical. You can do things that make you say, wow, I could not have done that in 10 hours. But on the other side, there are problems that pop up, and those are mistakes are number one. That's, you know, there recently, just today, there was a story about a school system that used an AI-based, you know, delivery method for planning out their routes, and some of the kids got home at 10 p.m. 
Now, that's not a generative example, but it shows that AI needs careful governance and vetting before you put it into play because children you know, shouldn't be getting home at 10 p.m. And the final one is mayhem. And this relates back to one of Rowan's themes, which is coherent nonsense, also known as hallucination where the models go beyond their training data and they yield results that are essentially made up. And it can create havoc in your business process if you are not constructing this in the way that you should be. And we have lots of you know, methods for improving that now, but if you kind of just throw these things out there without careful governance, you could face some mayhem. Sorry, I just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to add on to JP really quick right there on the... Um, the mistakes and mayhem piece, I think that it's very important for companies that are uh, looking at adopting and uh, building with generative AI to really dig into the uh, technology and understand it uh, at least, you know, uh, to a functional degree. Because in addition to the uh, example that JP mentioned, we've seen another recent example where a school system was using a large language model to identify whether books had, uh, you know, quote unquote, objectionable content within them. And it was very unclear whether that model had even been trained on the books that were in question. And this was being used to define the acceptable books within a library in a public school system. So that and that stems from not understanding what the core model is trained on and how to use it. So we're seeing a multitude of these use cases, uh, you know, the obvious ones are in the public sphere, but we're also seeing it in enterprises where folks are pushing these models beyond their capabilities when really we should be thinking about, you know, what are the narrower tasks that we can apply them to that they're very, very good at. And Ron, this is not different from what we've been talking about as predictive AI, which is kind of the pre-gen AI AI. Um, what has um, what has gen AI done for AI overall? You know, we talked a lot about um, the fact that the consumerization has spurred confusion in the enterprise, but has it also benefited the enterprise with more focus on broader AI strategies? Oh, I would say there's been a tremendous benefit to uh, enterprise AI writ large from the excitement around generative AI. I think that a lot of the initial benefit is actually coming from some confusion on the user side about what generative AI is. You know, the issue that I was just discussing actually has been a benefit for what we're talking about right now, because basically this has driven a lot of folks to say, oh, could I get an AI application to do X, Y, or Z? And they come in and ask, could, you know, could it, this application do X? And in fact, what they're asking for is something that involves, you know, segmentation or propensity modeling or something that is a more traditional predictive model uh, or other type of machine learning model within an application to do some type of you know, singular prediction rather than building an entire piece of content. And so this uh, excitement on Gen AI has really spurred more interest in all of these other use cases, which is allowing the tech leaders to then go to their leadership and say, hey, you know, we have all these use cases and look at the benefit that uh, it can provide. Can we get some more resources to do this? And so we've been seeing you know, a lot of folks basically leverage generative AI as the way to get more attention around uh, AI as a broader theme. Okay, so sounds like Rowan, there's a great knock-on effect. You know, uh, you know, all the leaders who've been uh, pounding, pounding their executives on more AI now actually get heard, which is great. But there is still a literacy problem associated with AI. You know, as we implement, as we scale across the enterprise, as this gets into the hands of leaders and and teams. So. What do we do about this AI literacy problem? 
You know, there is a foundational problem and it runs across the people, your employees, the leaders in your organization and the organization itself, right? And we have a model for this that we've been using for several years called RQ, the Robotics Quotient. And it measures the uh, readiness of individuals, of teams, of entire organizations to adapt to, to collaborate with, and to drive business results from AI, generative AI, automation, and similar kinds of deployments. And the thesis here is very simple, that there are some human determinants like AI literacy, like basic digital literacy, that can better equip us to actually take these technologies and turn them into successful deployments. So that is to say, you know, your AI um, deployment could fail because you have some data problems. It could fail because of technology problems. But the root cause is often your people aren't ready, your leaders aren't ready, and your org structure isn't ready. And to give you just a couple of quick examples of the kinds of things in our battery that helps you figure it out, one of them would be, I know when to question the results of an AI-generated uh, you know, piece of text. And the truth is, most people don't know. Um, and we've seen that again and again, like the lawyer who submitted an entire brief to the court that included made-up cases, which is illegal, but he didn't know that ChatGPT could generate that kind of an output. Uh, or on a leader side, has the leader established a transparent and empathetic relationship with the workforce. Now you may say, well, that has nothing to do with AI, but let me give you an example. If you're gonna give your workers some kind of AI tool and you tell them, oh, this isn't to replace your job, it's to help you be more effective. But if you have a poor record of transparency, honesty, and empathy, they're not gonna believe you, right? So we have identified these 16 different characteristics in our RQ model that clients can take and sort of talk through. Do you have the sufficient digital literacy at the people level? Do your leaders have a vision? And do they have the kind of skills to set a vision into a strategy that would actually drive uh, business results? In the generative AI space specifically, and in AI more broadly, but specifically within generative AI, we really don't know what the final form of uh, optimal processes and uh, work styles and interaction methods is going to be once we have started to integrate all of the capabilities from generative AI. So organizations, you know, may be desperate for the answer today. And the truth is there really isn't an answer today for how best to design your organization and move forward and build the best pro productivity around this. So clearly there's a risk of not concentrating enough on RQ. There are other risks that, you know, we've been talking about uh, in many conversations that companies are grappling with. How has that changed? You know, how have, have companies and leaders started to think about risks in a different way as they're forging ahead? Yeah, so I would say the good ones are looking at risk as a issue to be managed rather than something that is to be totally controlled or completely governed. So really overall, this goes back to, you know, our cue that we were just talking about. It's this whole mindset of accepting, you know, variability and non-deterministic outputs from models and applications and just understanding how to properly manage those. And so, you know, overall, we've seen leaders get more comfortable with this, but also uh, they were not more comfortable necessarily. They have gotten more aware of this. Some have gotten more comfortable. Others have gotten more uncomfortable around um, 
the non-deterministic nature of this. But I think that the management of risk has really evolved at kind of the overall enterprise level. Whereas before, you know, it was very much like, let's just either try and send out some light communications internally, try to get people to stop using generative AI or to use it properly, or we'll block it all down. Whereas now, you know, I'm seeing much more proactive engagement to kind of change the culture and get to the, um, the state that uh, JP was kind of describing where people understand generative AI, are aware of its capabilities and its limitations and things like that, and are actually in, uh, inviting each other into the conversation so that it can evolve within the enterprise context. And that is leading to, you know, more use cases being developed. It's leading to, uh, you know, more responsible use of this uh, technology. And also for some organizations, it's leading to the creation of uh, new assets that you can use. So there's this thing called prompt libraries where basically you assemble a list of, you know, um, off to use prompts that you have certain responses to that are very effective for your organization in certain contexts, and then people can go and reference them. We're seeing these kind of emerge from a grassroots level at a number of different organizations. So the governance has really evolved, and the, the mindset around this has evolved to um, much more proactive and kind of multifaceted engagement with the technology. It's important to note that there is a risk associated with doing nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, bring your own AI, BYOAI, right? So when you sort of encourage your uh, workers to use outside AI, it isn't governed. It hasn't been intentionally architected and designed. And they're really, it's a bit wild west. So, you know, running out and, and using ChatGPT, all sorts of uh, data security potential issues. Uh, Maybe the model gets trained a little bit on some answers to private data. That would be a really bad no-no. Maybe there's hallucination. But the truth is, um, despite the fact that many, many organizations are trying to ban these sites from the corporate network, every worker has a phone in front of them and can tap into it at will. So BYOAI becomes a risk if you don't manage it, if you don't channel that excitement and energy that workers have to be more productive, to get their work done, to tap into generative solutions, um, you know, you sort of risk alienating them and having them go outside. So we have FOMO, we have BYOAI, we have our Q challenges, what should companies be doing right now? People are forging ahead, you know, given all of this complexity, but what should they be doing today um, in terms of getting their Gen AI strategies and investing now for making sure that, you know, what they do in the next six months and next year will, will set them up for success and growth. Yeah. So I'll start off here and I'm sure JP will have a number of other things to add in. Uh, I think that, you know, the first couple of things that companies should think about are at the very least, you should have some kind of strategy and internal engagement policy around generative AI, even if you're not going to build or buy anything in the foreseeable future, which I don't think that's a good idea overall. But even if you're not doing that, as JP pointed out, you know, people are going to be using this technology whether or not you like it. And they can either be doing it in the shadows or they can be doing it more in the open where you have an understanding of what's going on. So at the very least, proactively engaging with your employees and building a strategy for how to encourage responsible use and funnel them towards responsible usages overall. So that could be things as simple as having pop-ups on a lot of the popular chatbot sites that say, hey, you know, you agreed to this data um, privacy sharing when you you know, agree to work at this company, so you better follow up on it when you use this site. 
Um, you know, some other ideas that have popped up have been like redirects to other sites. Um, if you try and use a chatbot site from a corporate browser, but um, all of those things, you know, are uh, heavy handed and are all about, you know, it not using generative AI in a bad way. But in terms of adopting, we are seeing a lot of folks uh, look very closely at their existing vendors and see what seeing what capabilities are being offered in terms of generative AI functionality from those folks. And they're doing that because building with generative AI, while it can create some amazing and highly differentiating uh, use cases, is not, you know, uh, flip a switch and the application is built and done. You know, it, it's not like you can just type a prompt into a large language model and have it automatically create a whole enterprise grade application for you. Maybe that will happen in 10 years, maybe not. But for now, you know, you really need to start thinking about how you're going to put this together. And if you can't put it together with your own skills, source from your vendors. And, you know, nearly every vendor under the sun at this point in time has some kind of generative AI strategy. And so it really comes down to what they're offering you, how much it's going to cost you, and whether it's actually going to provide a differentiating capability for your company. And so that's why it's also very important to start looking at these potential use cases overall to then start delineating between, you know, this is a competitive differentiator for us, so maybe we want to build a solution here or have a custom solution built for us, or maybe this is not core to our business, so perhaps we want to source something like a productivity tool or something of that nature. And so those are kind of the, the first two ways to get started. And then uh, in terms of maybe some of the tangible assets that you could start to put together, even if you're not uh, building or adopting a specific application, but you know starting to test the waters, uh, is you can build things like prompt libraries, like I mentioned before. You can start looking at building question and answer sets um, that are very useful for instruction tuning, which can hone in the behavior of models for specific use cases. And then you can also just start to work on your own internal data management and data governance. Like there are some very core basic things about data management that I'm sure you're not doing at your company. And that is what is going to make generative AI really shine for you because all of the most useful applications, uh, at least right now, of generative AI rely on being able to access uh, external data to focus and hone in and ground the responses of that model to a certain uh, prescribed range of behavior that is appropriate to your company. And so having that data set already built out for yourself is going to give you a big advantage in uh, building or leveraging a, a generative AI application. For the workforce, I'd like to see our clients um, look at the different roles within their organization and try to identify the roles and tasks and workflows that can benefit from generative AI and sort of map that problem, start with the problem and map that to some, you know, emerging things that are on the market. Now it could be a lot of companies are having productivity problems. This has been dropping for the last eight quarters or so. And uh, that is certainly a business problem that makes C-level executives take note. So perhaps one possible solution to that is something like Microsoft 365 Copilot, which is popular right now under consideration because it works with programs that people already used. You know, you, Rowan said many, many software vendors are going to add that functionality. Of course, Microsoft is very fast to this game. But you have to build a business case around it. You have to try to understand what is going to be um, the, the sort of return on investment, the savings of 
time that will drive up productivity, the increases in being able to do things that you couldn't easily do before. Um, I, my favorite example is pivot tables, because every time I build one, I have to go back to YouTube and look at it because I don't build enough of them. So if I could simply say, Copilot, take this data, build a, a, you know, a pivot table. Uh, if I had to do that every week, I could easily report back to those who were deploying it and tell them how much time I had saved. So establishing key performance indicators for the pilots that you undertake is going to be crucial. You can't just sort of throw money hand over fist and expect return on investment. So identify key cases, uh, key workflows, and then establish the KPIs to track whether it's actually benefiting you during a trial. And what's interesting about what both of you said is that there are, there are these macro considerations creating competitive differentiation, creating that sort of uniqueness for your company. And there are these micro decisions, uh, you know, and workflows and, you know, studying impact and estimating, you know, productivity gains. And both of these have to come together to get Gen AI right. So stepping outside of the enterprise context, you know, just when you think generative AI can't do this, it does. What are some of the most wildest things that you've seen out there in terms of um, what Gen AI has been able to do? Uh, yeah, Shri. So JP, um, do you want to start off with that nightmare fuel example that we were talking about earlier this week? Yeah, you know, there is going to be a, a real problem with creepiness. And one of the examples that we had identified very recently was animating um, missing and, and deceased children in order to be part of an educational campaign. Now, the people who developed this, their, their hearts were probably in the right place. They're trying to educate people about how children go missing. But it wasn't done in consultation with the families of these children. It was certainly not the most um, sensitive approach. Uh, that may be an extreme one, but this is going to come up in other ways. Reanimating Harriet Tubman, the historical figure, uh, using her writings, using photos of her. Many people have critiqued this and said, you know, you're sort of doing this against um, Harriet Tubman's will. She had no consent in this. We don't know if we're capturing the essence of what she actually believed, and the educational value of it is all very questionable. Now, the culture will shift over time as we see these things and we negotiate and navigate the ethics, but there's definitely an aspect to this that gets a little bit dark. And I'll just turn that to a, a maybe a brighter uh, spin on that, because um, that example definitely made me a little bit unsettled. Um, it, and that is uh, this really great set of innovations that I've been seeing coming out of the uh, video creation space. And so there's been a lot of talk about uh, text to video creation in terms of generative video creation. What I find most exciting right now is a lot of the tools that are out there in the open source for doing basically remasking of videos uh, using AI image generators. So these are tools like Warp Fusion, and there's a couple others out there that break down a video into individual frames and then apply an image generator to each of those frames. So essentially what you're able to do is say, you know, take me walking in a field um, in the city where I live, and then you could run it through Warp Fusion and I could be walking across, you know, the deserts of Arrakis or like, you know, uh, through the, you know, the plains of Mongolia or something like that. And so this allows for a really interesting new uh, way to apply visual effects to um, various videos. And so obviously there's a lot of CGI implications, but one of the very interesting add-ons to this is I've seen some interesting uh, early demos, uh, mostly from hobbyists, to be honest, um, 
working on basically using those same type of image generators to uh, change uh, people's facial and lip movements uh, to a different language and then using a uh, synthetic voice generator to say, uh, enable me to be speaking Urdu in a video with my lips actually making the correct um, movements for the vowels and the consonants so that it looks like I'm speaking that language. So this opens up a whole new world for localization, for personalization, but also for dubbing and for, you know, the um, uh, transmission of historical uh, and archival video into the future. So that I think is one of the very interesting areas that is going to, um, I think have a big impact on the consumer and the business space over the next 18 months or so. So this is a huge onion to peel. Every time we peel this onion, uh, it keeps, uh, keeps growing seems like, and we have a lot of things to unpack for our clients. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, we have more to come in our fall events, our tech and innovation event, as well as data strategy and insights event, where our analysts will be talking a lot about AI and generative AI, as well as our predictions reports that will come out later in the fall. Uh, clearly, this is a fun time to be predicting things in this space as well. So thank you both. Thanks, Rowan. Thanks, JP, for the conversation. This is uh, just the tip of the iceberg. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to check out our upcoming technology forum starting in September. To learn more, visit for.com slash tech events. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash tech events. Thanks for listening.